you need to help me, um, or I'm going to give you I'm going to, some, from some popular proverbs, and you're going to have to finish them. Okay, let's see how well you know these. Two wrongs don't make a right. What does that mean? Now, yeah, if someone's as bad to you, try to do something bad to them only makes things worse usually, or doesn't mean that it's right. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Someone helps you when you're down and out, when you're in trouble, that, that's a true friend. Better safe, sorry. Why is that? What does that mean? Yeah, you should always, yeah it's, it's always better to err on the side of safety than, uh, than caution, I guess, or uh, risk. What, what would be the uh, caution? What's, what's the antonym for caution? No, no, no. Uh, antonym. Reckless. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Okay. Don't talk the talk if you can't walk the walk. Don't brag about being able to do something unless you actually know how to do it. Great minds. Smart people usually have the same ideas. Larry, me and you, we have the same ideas. Haste makes waste. Is that always true? Sometimes you need haste, yeah. When you try to work quickly, this, by the way, is, is me doing any kind of home improvement. Um, I'm always hasting and therefore very wasting. You know, they say measure, tw- what, measure twice, cut once. Now I measure once, then go back to Lowe's and get another one. <laughs> if you snooze, you lose. It, that's not always true. If you have to act fast, uh, you're not going to get what you want, I guess. If you lie down with dogs, you'll... Tim's Mr. Proverbs today. There you go. Proverbs. Yeah, good. We, I, didn't, I, I wouldn't have known this one. I, I did, I'm not kind of familiar with this one. If you lie down with dogs, you'll wake up with fleas. What does that mean? Yeah, don't, don't get dogs. Uh, we just had our last one pass away, as you know, a couple weeks ago. So, uh, Look before you leap. That's not always true. If an RTD bus is bearing down upon you, you probably should leap. Okay, here's the last one. Sticks and stones may break my bones... Do you believe that? <clears throat> Open your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 3. And while you're turning there, uh, my, my introduction into ministry, and it's, and it's amazing I'm still in vocational ministry, is I was a junior high pastor in a church in Albuquerque. And I had 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. So it's, it was middle school. Did I say junior high? I dated myself. When, when I was... For those of you that are under 40, uh, we had junior highs, which was 7th, 8th, and ninth, and then high school was 10, 11, and 12. So I wasn't used to this middle school concept. You have 6th graders, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. And I'll never forget, I was, it, I was fresh out of, I was fresh out of uh, college. We had just gotten through playing football. I, I played at UNM, and, you know, I, man, I was excited. And, and the reason I say football because it, it makes – 
the, the story more impactful. And, and I'm standing in front of a group of sixth graders, and I'm given a lesson. And I am waxing eloquent. I am laying, in good old youth ministry fashion, laying guilt trips on them and manipulating them emotionally. And, uh, uh, and, and, it, and this kid was sitting down front. And, he, and he, you know when someone is not looking at you, they're looking like up here? Well, I had just gotten my hair cut. And he, he, he was just, I could tell he wasn't looking at me. He was looking up here. And uh, so finally I asked him, I said, is there, is there something about me that, you know? And he goes, your haircut looks weird. Here I was, a 23-year-old, played college football, and some little sixth-grade snot makes a comment about my hair, and suddenly I am like, I'm so self-conscious and devastated at this point that all I can think about is my hair and how my hair looks. Isn't it interesting, from a sixth grader to a relatively grown man, what kind of an impact that one little statement, your hair looks weird. Um, I, I think all of us probably could think of times when someone has said something. Uh, again, when I... It, it, Youth ministry at another church where I, where I was. Um, I'll, I'll never forget this. It's as if yesterday. Well, I had these parents. Parents said we'd like to talk to you. And whenever parents, if you're in youth ministry, in uh, and parents say we want to talk to you, it's never good. It's never to encourage you. It's never to say you know what can we do to help. Usually it's going to be, be criticism. And I'll never forget this. This I, I remember their names. I remember everything as if it was yesterday. They are complaining about our youth ministry, and they said, well, don't, we, we want to make ourselves clear. Our kids like you, but they just don't respect you. Man, that was devastating. I, Vicky will tell you, I came home and I said, you know, honey, I don't think I, don't think I should be in the ministry. I, um, it, was, it was just devastating. I'll never, they, love, they, they like you, but they don't respect you. Now, whether that was true or not, um, those words were devastating to me, uh, almost drove me out of the ministry. And I think, again, most of us would probably, uh, you, you probably are thinking of times right now where someone has said something to you um, that, that was so devastating that you've never forgotten it. I think that is the reason why James, I think, one of the many reasons why James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded chapter th- what we now call chapter 3, And he says, do not become teachers in large numbers, my brothers, since you know that we who are teachers will be will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to rein in the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their whole body as well. Look at the ships, too, though they are so large and driven by such strong winds. They are nevertheless directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot determines. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. 
For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one among mankind can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? And can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives or a vine bear figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. This is a difficult passage in a, for a number of reasons. Um, if you remember uh, in our introduction to James, James is what we would call New Testament wisdom, wisdom literature. It, it is very proverbial. We, we start out with Proverbs. It's very proverbial in nature, and he draws heavily from Proverbs uh, as well as from the law. Um, obviously, he grew up, remember who his brother was? His half-brother, I guess. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, he was not unfamiliar with Jesus' teachings, certainly. Um, he draws a great deal from, uh, from, from Jesus' teachings. Um, but the passage itself is difficult because there's this awkward transition from verses 1 and 2 to the rest of the passage. Because the question is this. He starts off by saying, Do not become teachers in large numbers, my brothers, since you know that we are teachers will incur a stricter judgment. So... Already you're thinking, well, the context is he's addressing teachers. But then he shifts in verse 2 to, to a more ge- general audience, I guess, in mind, when he says, well, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to reign in the whole body as well. And we just read the rest of the passage. It seems like he's talking generally or universally to all of us. Um, this is uh, very awkward um, it has led some to, to, to say that uh, James was just cutting and pasting, if you will, which may be the point. I tend to think that he probably started uh, writing just two teachers, but when he got to thinking about it, he said, this is something that we all wrestle with. That's my take on it, at least. But there's another difficulty, and it's in verse 1. And most of the time, we we just read over these things and we never ask ourselves, what does that really mean? When he says, not many of you do not become teachers in large numbers or not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, since you know that we who are teachers will incur, the translation I'm reading from is stricter judgment. Uh, Sal, what what does New King James say in verse 1? A stricter judgment. Anybody, King James says greater condemnation. Anybody else have anything different? Greatest strictness. Um, I, I did a, I did a translation comparison. I encourage you to do that, and especially in difficult passages. Uh, obviously, translations have different philosophies. Most of our translations, with the exception of King James, is the same textual basis. But but it's helpful to see what kind of what kind of agreement, if any, that, that translators have in terms of this phrase "greater strictness." ESV obviously says greater strictness. NES is stricter judgment. The Amplified Bible has judged by a higher standard. Uh, CSB, Cindy, is stricter judgment. King James, again, is greater condemnation. 
the NIV is judged more strictly. Well, that raises a lot of, well, not a lot, but in my mind, it raised four questions that, that, that we need to address. We need to pause here before we get into the, the rest of the passage on, on our speech. And that is, what does he mean that teachers will incur a stricter judgment? We need to ask ourselves some interpretive questions. What's the nature of this judgment? What, what does he mean when they will incur a stricter judgment? Is this temporal? In other words, is this, some, is this a judgment that, 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 that they face in this life? Is it similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9? He says, I, I buffet my body to bring it under control so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I, I will be uh, sidelined. I'll be put in the penalty box. I, I will lose. In other words, he says, I will lose my moral and prophetic authority to preach the word. Is, is that what he means by stricter judgment? Or is it what I would call eschatological judgment when we face Christ? Now, you can't say that what the judgment is is talking about rewards. Because who or what is being judged? Is, is his words being judged? No. He, the teacher, will be judged. So what's the nature of this judgment? It, is, it, is it they'll go to hell? That's number one. Number two is, what's the criteria? If he says, not many should become teachers because we will incur a greater condemnation, does that mean if, if every time I got a sermon wrong, I'm going to be judged for that? Whatever the nature of that judgment. By the way, what does judgment imply? Punishment. Some form of punishment, right? I mean, how, how can you be judged and say, you know, Shame on you, Courtney. I judge you. Now, now go on, you knucklehead. No, there, there's the implication of judgment is some kind of punishment. So, so what does he mean that teachers will receive a stricter judgment? Is, is if, if I just miss it, am I accountable for that? And, and when I say accountable, what do we mean by accountable? Uh, so number two, what's the criteria, what's the criteria of his judgment? Or... Is it real teachers versus counterfeit teachers? Is it pretenders? Number three, who are the recipients of this judgment? I just jumped ahead a little bit. Is, is it every single teacher? Every time I open my mouth, I'm going to have to so-called stand before Jesus when I, and, and he's going to judge me? We have to answer that question. What does he mean when James says teachers will incur a stricter judgment? The last thing, number four, is comparison. Greater than what? Or greater than who? When he says teachers will incur a greater, this is what we call a superlative. They'll receive a greater judgment. Greater than what? And greater judgment than whose? Or whom's? Who would it be? Whom's? Whom's? I want to encourage you that, that, when, that read Scripture carefully. Um, for those of us that, that meet on Wednesday nights, we're going through Exodus. And I told you, remember we, we, had, we had an icky moment uh, when, when we read our last passage. We have another icky moment 
coming up in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. What do we do when we face difficult passages or a difficult verse or a difficult phrase? The first thing we do is we, we appeal to or rely upon the analogy of faith, which means Scripture interprets Scripture. What that means is Scripture will, in fact, interpret Scripture. We don't, we don't rush to a commentary. Trust me, in many cases, they're guessing just like you are. I mean, they're going to go through the same process that I encourage you to go through. What else does, this, what else does the Scripture teach us about judgment, about the nature of judgment? Does the Scripture teach of temporal judgment, where we, where we will be judged in this life, where does the scriptures, what do the scriptures teach about judgment at what I call eschatological, you know, when God wraps up history? But the analogy of faith also says this. It says, I may not be able to determine what this really means, but I can rule out what it can't mean because of where, what, what scripture teaches elsewhere. Whenever I face a passage, for instance, it's, well, we just talked about it, right? We, last week in James 2, 14, 26, when he said, Faith without works is dead. And a person is saved by faith and works. We we know that can't mean what? That you're saved by works. Why? How do we know that? That verse can't mean that. Because all the other places, all the other places, particularly in Romans and Galatians, that clearly teach that we're saved by grace alone. So that's the analogy of faith. That's scripture interprets scripture. I may not know what, ever know what James 3, 1 means, but I, I think I can rule out what it can't mean because of what scripture teaches elsewhere. And if you've been with us for any given period of time, you know I am big on what are my interpretive options. Start, what are the options? What are the options of what this could mean? It could or couldn't mean. List them, and can you rule out what it can't mean? So this is what I did. So let's walk through this real quickly. What is the nature of this judgment when he says, do not, um, do not become teachers in large numbers, my brothers, since you know that we who are teachers will, be, will incur a stricter judgment? What's the nature of this judgment? Um, I think clearly if, 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 you, if, if you look at judgment and how it's used elsewhere, in most cases he's talking eschatologically. In other words, judgment uh, at, at the end, the very end, the real end, the final end. When, when God wraps this, all of this up, when, when the kingdom is, when he is victory, he, by the way, I, I heard a, a famous preacher this week say, and, and I, I, God bless him, I appreciate his honesty, he says, you know, we lose here. We don't win in this world. We've lost and we're going to lose, and, but, but we got heaven. Uh, anyway, the, the, last, the last enemy that will be defeated by Christ is death, and it will all be handled, handed to, to God the Father. Um, where, where was I going with that? I don't know. That was free. Um, but, but it's mostly, the judgment is dealing with, with eschatological judgments. It's at the very end when he wraps up history. So I think that, that, it, that in verse 3, and we don't have time to walk through all that, I think... When he's talking about this judgment, I think it is, in fact, eschatological judgment. I think it's those who will have to answer to the Lord when it's all said and done. What's the criteria? Well, the context he's talking about what? Our speech. What they taught. I, now, obviously, it would include his lifestyle. I mean, Paul says that to Timothy. You know, watch your life 
and doctrine closely. I mean, it would include his lifestyle. But by and large, these teachers will have to give an account to the Lord for what they taught. So when a teacher stands up and says, you can have your best life now. I hope this isn't my best life. I think in in the context of chapter 3, talking about the the tongue and speech, the the content of their teaching is, will be the source of the, judge, the, the fact that they are judged. Well, then the question is, who are these recipients? Is it every single teacher that stands in a pulpit or in a Sunday school class, will they have to give an account to Jesus? Let's run with that for a minute. Let's say that every preacher is going to be judged. Every sermon, I stand before Christ, he's going to go, nope, nope. Eh, nope. Boy, you hit the nail on the head, that one, Brooks. Nope, nope. Okay, I read in the Bible that Paul said, absent from, okay, here, complete this phrase, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So, prior to the resurrection of the believing dead, if you're a believer and you die, you are immediately in the presence of the Lord. So my question is, so when was this judgment going to take place? When is Jesus going to scold me for the bad things I taught? So I'm with him, conscious presence with Jesus, and then there's going to be, I, I'm, someday I'm reunited with my body in what we call the general res- resurrection. So is that when I, so I'm in, but then I go, it's, it's kind of like when you, 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 expatriate in a foreign country, you know, you know how they do it, where you, you, can be, you can be there for six months at a time, but you have to leave the country and then come back in? Is that what it's... When exactly is this judgment? Let's assume that this judgment is, in fact, condemnation. When's it going to take place? And, and that leads me to... It, it, uh, there... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, no, Jim, what, you, what he meant was there's no condemnation for getting into the kingdom. But once you're in the kingdom, boy, now you're going to be held accountable, buddy. And in fact, he says, all of us will. What exactly is the nature of that accountability? If I'm accountable to someone, what's the implication? That there has to be some kind of ramifications. Well, what are the ramifications for a believer who is holy and blameless in God's sight? Who, because of the, the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, is totally and wholly forgiven. Now, we're back to that old Romans 6 argument. Well, Jim, well, then that, does, that means that we can say whatever we want, and we can preach and teach whatever we want, and there's no ramifications. No, they don't understand true grace. But, number three, here's, here's the long and short of it of what I think is going on here. I think that what he's talking about, when he's talking about teachers, he's talking about a class. That we, as a part of the class of teachers, those who are teachers in the church, will incur a stricter judgment. In other words, the recipients are not true teachers, but false teachers. 
Those who claim to be teachers in the church, those who scramble to, be, to, to, to preach from a pulpit and who don't know Jesus Christ and are preaching false doctrine, they will be held accountable. In fact, they will receive a stricter judgment. Stricter judgment from who? A stricter judgment from the average person, which leads me to believe there are differing, there's other arguments I make, there are differing levels of punishment in hell. Now, I'm, I am accountable to you for what I preach. But, uh, I'm accountable to God for what I preach. But I'm also accountable through the local church. And when I go off the rails, again, you guys have the, the freedom to beat me severely about the head, neck, and shoulders with a rubber hose, Seth. But those who are being judged were not real. They were... They were in the class of teachers, but they will be judged. They will be shown for who they really are. And, and what they taught people and led people astray, they will incur a stricter condemnation for that. When, 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 when they teach word faith theology, the name it, claim it. By the way, a couple of days ago, Fred Price just passed away. Famous word faith preacher from uh, Crenshaw, Crenshaw Christian Center in, in California. False teachers are false teachers. Trust me, his views have changed. I think that's in context, biblical context, in this context. He's he's not saying that good and godly, well-intentioned biblical preachers are going to have to, we're going to be condemned for getting a sermon wrong. Now, again, that doesn't mean that those who teach should take a flippant attitude towards it. Um, one of the things that, 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 that I become, that I'm most concerned or most uh, nervous about is I want to make sure that when I say, thus saith the Lord, that's what the, the Lord saith, saith that he said that. Well, let's get real, Right? Let's get real, because this is what James does. He begins in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to reign in the whole body as well. And now the question is, is he talking hypothetically here? Hypothetically? Or is he talking in a, that, that this is a real possibility? In other words, he's saying it, it's, a, it's really possible to reign in your tongue. First of all, what do we mean by tongue? Let's, let's settle that. Is he talking about, I'm going to be gross, in, a, in an age of COVID, I'm going to actually do this. Uh-huh. Is he talking about your tongue? This, this, that muscle in your mouth? No. This is what we call a metonymy. This is the figure of speech called metonymy. A metonymy is when you take one object to make it represent another to which it's associated with. A classic one we sang about this morning is the cross. When we talk about the cross, are we talking about the wooden thing? Most of the time, what are we talking about? When we talk about the cross, that's a figure of speech for forgiveness. Yeah, Christ's death, our, 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 the price that was paid for our death. It's an object that represents another concept or object that it's related to, but it, it, we can get our hands on that. So what does he mean when he's talking about the tongue? What, what might he be really talking about? Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words 
frequently hurt us. So he's talking about our speech. He's talking about how we speak, our words that we use. And he says, first of all, there's a real possibility of gaining control of your tongue, of gaining control of your words. Now, for some of us, that's not, I shouldn't say some of us, some of us as a church, because I have foot and mouth disease. And and my poor wife uh, shudders every time I start talking because my filters somehow get clogged up. Um, And sometimes sometimes I don't have real good filters. But I I know that some of you don't have a problem with this. You're more reserved and and, uh, you're not quite as opinionated as I am. Um, And and so it's less of a problem for you. But for people like me, this is a a real faith test. This This is something I have to work hard at. He says, listen, it's, it's a real possibility. Because he says, listen, verse 3, if we, put a, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their whole body as well. And we talked about, we talked about this recently. Remember I gave you a bridle bit and the, the thing? That, okay. A horse, a, the, the, what's, the, what's the bridle? Actually, it's more of the, that's the whole thing. But the bit is a little, like a metal rod that goes in a horse's mouth. And you can have a large, you, you could have a, uh, uh, what do they call those big horses you used to pull the beer wagons? Clydesdales. You have a Clydesdale. Put a little piece of metal in his mouth. You can make that dude go wherever you want him to go. He's saying something, even though your mouth is rel- a figure of speech, a relatively small part of your body, it doesn't take much to control your whole life. He uses bits and bridles as an, as an example. A large horse can be controlled by a very small thing. Not just bits and bridles, but boats. Look at verse 4. It said, look at the ships too. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are nevertheless directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot determines. So he's saying, listen, you have, this, you have this massive boat and this small little rudder, and uh, relatively speaking, I guess, to the size of the boat, it's not just that, not just a small rudder, but even in the face of severe winds and waves and turbulence, that ship can be steered with that little tiny rudder. I think he's saying, first of all, yes, we all stumble in many ways in the way that we speak, but it's a real possibility to get this thing under control because it doesn't take much. It only takes small things to direct larger things. I think the point is if we can control our tongue, we will be able to better control other areas of our lives, our desires, our emotions. So he says it's a real possibility. But then really I think... um, the, 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 the thrust of the passage begins in verse 5 when he says, yet at the same time, it's a real danger. It's a real danger. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. For instance, see how great a forest is set on fire by someone flicking a cigarette out their car window. We have the lights home was in danger of going up in flames. Am I exaggerating? It kind of it, it felt that way. You had a 
they just had a fire in, in, where it was in your back 40 there or coming up on your, your fence. Someone was on uh, Smoky. It's still Smoky Hill there, right? Powhatan. Powhatan. That's how we said it on, when, when I was on the streets. Powhatan. Okay. <laughs> they flipped a cigarette. This was yesterday, right? The snow put it out. But, no, it came up to your back fence. came up to their back fence. Fire. A little cigarette. A little cigarette, a, a train, a little spark, you know, out, out in the prairie, a little spark. He's saying, listen, uh, while it is a real possibility for you to control it and to, and to control your whole life, understand that, that it is a very real danger. He says, see how great a forest is set aflame by small fire. We, we've experienced this just this last summer. You know, someone, I guess, I don't know, was it somehow a little campfire? You know, and, and suddenly, you know, eight gabillion acres are burned down. He's saying, listen, this is very strong language. Look, look how he continues. He says, uh, the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body's parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. This is strong language. He said... Our, our speech and the way we use our words can be very, very destructive. Now, let me ask you this. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Yes. When is fire a good thing? If you're in, if you're in Texas, yeah. Basically, when a fire is contained and confined to the area in which it is designed to be in, it's a good thing. When you camp out and you have a little campfire and you're roasting your weenies and your s'mores and, it, and it's staying inside that little pit, okay, oh, you warm your hands, you know, you're, you, it mesmerizes us. And the, it's a good thing. But suddenly... Uh, we have a fireplace. We have a wood-burning fireplace. If, if, if that fire came outside of that, con- that containment, now we got problems. Now suddenly it's a bad thing. So he's saying that the potential of our speech is kind of like fire. It can be a good thing if it's contained, if it's confined. But once it is no longer under control, I... I uh, as you know, I've, I've also had some secular jobs. And one of, when I first graduated from, from college, I went to work uh, for Steamatic. Steamatic, we did carpet cleaning. But part of our company did fire and water damage restoration, which I, I, I was in. And they sent me to Dallas for fire training. And I had to learn all about fires. And uh, we met with fire marshals, and we went out and saw, saw some houses that had been burned. And fire is an amazing thing. It's almost like it has a mind of its own. And the heat, the heat is unbelievable. The heat of a fire is unimaginable. We, we, we saw a house where there was a kitchen fire, a major kitchen fire. The whole kitchen was engulfed. And a phone in one of the bedrooms melted from the heat. And we know that, right? You stand in front of a fire, man, there's a lot of heat coming up. The, the heat, the damage done by heat, the damage done by soot, most of the damage is done by soot. Soot goes from, goes from cold, from hot to cold. Cold attracts it. They found soot inside of refrigerators, encased refrigerators. 
Fire has a has a mind of its own. When it when it when it is no longer confined, it is a destructive thing. It's good when it's contained, but when it is no longer confined and contained, it can be very very destructive. And he's saying it is a fire. You don't mess with it. How many of you, when your children were growing up, gave them a, a cigarette lighter to play with? Don't raise your hand. N- number two, he says, not only is, is it very destructive, but it, it's, it's, it's undomesticated. Um, look at me at verse 7. It says, every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one among mankind can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He's saying, listen, this, this thing is untamable. This is a wild animal. I do not recommend uh, trying to raise a wolf as a pet. It may be nice and cuddly and cute, but it is wild, and someday it's going to bite your head off. He says, in fact, that all kinds of species have been tamed or are being tamed. I mean, we can semi, I mean, dogs have been tamed, and not all dogs are wolves. You know, I, again, dog, we, our, our dogs are domesticated. Cats are domesticated, not tigers. Don't want to, don't want to try that one. Guy at the zoo tried that. Who was that? Was that guy's name again? Zigfield. What was his name? Zigfield and Roy. Yeah. He just got a little too comfortable with that tiger. And he, and he said, then he says it's it's a deadly poison. How many of you would how many of you would risk? You say, listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna have an 18 ounce glass of water and I'm just gonna put one little drop of strychnine in it. You're gonna you're gonna roll the dice on that one. Notice he doesn't say it's untamable. What does he say? It's untamable by us by we can't tame it and he doesn't mention it here but it's almost unspoken but god can it's humanly untamable again look at verse uh, eight no one among mankind no man can tame his tongue but the implication is god can and and the reason he doesn't state this is he's, he's still emphasizing the danger of it he doesn't want to give us an out at this point and say oh, okay well, it's not that dangerous because god will intervene no he's saying it is extremely uh, wild and untamable. And, and finally, he says it is duplicitous. Look at verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. With, with it, we curse people. I come to church and I say, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I get in my car and I go up here to, to, uh, to Hamden uh, and someone doesn't... By the way, nobody uses their turn signals anymore. I'll just tell you that right now. No one, no one uses their turn. They don't, they don't know this. And I start, use that. Now I don't, but I'm just saying, this is hypothetical. Yeah, so-and-so, why can't you use your driver's license? Or, or when they come to a stop sign, a stoplight, and they leave three, if this is you, please don't do this anymore. They leave three car lengths between themselves and the car in front of them. And I'm behind them. And I just got through singing the doxology. Susie, stop doing that, please. And, and now suddenly I'm, oh, I'm tired. Or, purely hypothetical, 
I praise and I worship and I preach. I wax eloquent and I'm praying and, and, and then I go home and I have sharp words with my wife. Purely hypothetical. He, he's saying, uh, from this, verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He says, it shouldn't be that way. This shouldn't be. And he said, look at, look at how I've designed creation. Does a, does a spring send out both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a vine bear figs? No. Nor can salt water produce fresh water? The, the, the mouth so often is just contrary to how God has designed things. What's the conclusion? Uh, I'm going to start with the heart. If, if, we, if we think about it, it's really not my tongue. It's not my speech. What controls my speech, the Bible says? My heart. But even that's a figure of speech. Um, my, my heart does. Turn, turn to Matthew 12, uh, if you would. Matthew 12. Twelve through thirty-four. So we start with the heart. Jesus speaking to the to the Pharisees, and he says, uh, "I'll start in verse thirty-three. Either assume the tree to be good as well as its fruit good, or assume the tree to be bad as well as its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit." Now here it is, verse thirty-four. You offspring of vipers, how can you, being evil, express any good things? For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. See, if you have a speech problem, you really don't have a speech problem. You have a heart problem. If you have a speech problem, you don't clean up your speech. You don't clean up your language. You clean up your heart. Go to the source of the problem. Uh, Proverbs says, uh, guard your heart. Above all things, guard your heart. For from it are the wellsprings of life. Number two, not just start with the heart, but think big. Think big. What do I mean by that? Think big in terms of how big a, a destructive force your speech can be, but also think big of how positive our speech can be. Uh, Proverbs 18.21. Think big. Here's big. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can bring life to somebody through your speech, or you can bring death to somebody through their speech. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So death. We need to think big about how much damage we can do. We need to to consciously remember what kind of damage careless words can do. Reckless words. In fact, Proverbs 12, 18 says, reckless words pierce like a sword. We need to take seriously James's warning about the nature of our speech and our words and how destructive they are and how destructive they can be. But, on the other hand, rather than just focusing on, we, we, need, to, we need to remember how, how wild and untamable and destructive our speech is. But we can, we, if, if we take seriously the, the ability that, that, that we can bridle and we can rein it, we can steer it, 
in a positive way, think of how much good we can bring, how, how much life we can bring. Uh, if you're already in Proverbs, Proverbs 16:24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb. They're sweet to the taste. They, um, so often, you guys have, have send me an email or a text, or you say something to me, and, it, and it's just so soothing, and it's it is so healing, and and, and it brings life. And it's sad that we don't speak to one another more like that. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome talk or word come out of your mouth, but only what? That which is... Well, I had it memorized at one point. I suppose I can, I can read it. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. That, that, that's the bad use of the tongue. But if there is any good word for edification, according to the need of the moment, say that, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Think of how much good we can bring to one another. Think of how much good we can bring to others around us. By just speaking good, wholesome, kind words to them. You know, when when uh, someone at the drive-through, you know, how do it, speak kind, healing words to them? Unless, of course, it's Taco Bell, and they get your order wrong for the tenth time. No, I'm just teasing. I'm not teasing about them getting wrong. I'm teasing about you saying, but um, no, seriously. We we here's what I want us to do. Here's here's your assignment this week. I want you to keep either a literal journal or a mental journal of how you use your speech. How many times did you use your speech in an unhealthy way or a destructive way or a way that was out of control as opposed to intentionally using our words and our speech to speak healthy, edifying, encouraging words. And James says that when we when we learn to do that, it will, it will in fact, affect everything about our lives. Like the, like the bit in the horse and the rudder of a ship, we can control the whole course of our life that, that, that as we learn to get this bad boy under control, the power of the Holy Spirit, there are so many things in our lives that we'll also be, we'll be able to control. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but so will words. So can words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hard words for us today. Uh, Father, I know many of us, some of us struggle with this more than others. But Father, even for those who think the words in their head, they may not say it out loud, but if they're thinking those words in their head, if they're, they're saying, boy, if I, would, if I could say something, I would, it's just, it's, it, that applies to. Father, help us. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to be more cognizant and, and, and uh, conscious of how we are using our words and our speech. Help us to be encouragers. That we would speak words of health and life and peace. That doesn't mean, Father, that we 
overlook issues. But Lord, help us to treat one another and to speak to one another with uh, godly, biblical, helpful words. Forgive me, forgive us, the many times when we have used our tongues in a destructive way, whether consciously or subconsciously. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?